This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the BCHA or its board of directors. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. Yeah, so I'll, I'll keep the talk short-ish, about 45 minutes, give or take. Yeah. And then I'll get into uh, lots of time for questions, because I know there'll be lots of questions. There usually are lots of questions about this. And, of course, lots of questions about the BC election, which isn't over yet by any stretch of the imagination, is the most messy electoral uh, scenario you could imagine in the history of British Columbia, for sure, and one of the messiest in Canadian history, and to the point where we don't really know what's going to happen, and that includes folks who who are experts in this. Uh, Not least of which because we don't know what's going to happen with the speaker. So the legislators have to pick a speaker as their first act. It's the first thing they do. And nobody seems to want the job. So there's a precedent in Newfoundland from 100 years ago where no one would take the job, so they had to hold another election. So that, that is, the, no, no kidding, that is the only precedent we have for what's happening right now is 100 years ago in Newfoundland. So well, I'm happy to talk about that. So... A little background on, on where I'm coming from philosophically. I'm a, what you'd call a deliberative Democrat, which is to say someone who believes in the value of exchanging reasons for and against propositions in a democracy, whether that's in the legislature, ordinary citizens. So instead of just aggregating votes and just saying, you know, I'm for this, I'm against that, or horse trading, or bullying, or any of that nasty stuff, my preference is to hold deliberations. Uh, imagine a jury or even the best example, a Supreme Court, where people have their attachments and their commitments, but they sit down and they give ideas and reasons, and they go back and forth, and they come up with something. That isn't to say necessarily a consensus, but at least a working agreement. That's based on reason giving, publicity, which is to say it has to be publicly available, rationality, evidence, all of these things that we think are important in democracy. So you know, that's where I'm coming from in terms of, of a normative commitment to how I think the world should be. Uh, politically, I'm on the left. I'm not a partisan, but I, uh, if, you, if you like the old spectrum as a way of understanding things, I'm on the left. But I'm also a civic Republican. So I'm also very much committed to the idea that citizenship is important, that there are some very important common unifying values that are necessary in order to hold a, a country or a province or a city together and that we should be able to press citizens into, into service. So I'm a big fan of mandatory voting. I'm a big fan of citizen juries. I'm working on a paper right now about how we should be able to compel citizens to sit on juries for policy matters, like we do in court cases, for instance, and so on. So that's who I am, in case you want to know my biases off the top. So the, the question I want to get into today and, and what I studied for my dissertation is, can we make good political decisions? Why or why not? This is especially important in a democracy because it's premised on the idea that citizens can and do make good decisions, that they ought to be the deciders for themselves, that they ought to be able to chart their own course and effectively self-determine. And there's you know, a, a commitment to that that exists independent of how well we do. That's just good in and of itself, even if we're bad at it. That's important. But to me, there's also another side to it, which is, well, shouldn't we be good at it? We certainly expect that we are. Is that true? And of course, I want to look at this in the context of, of today. This isn't just an abstract discussion. This is also a question of how do we do this in the face of the 21st century, which I think is, is a, an unprecedented mess, and by which I mean there are plenty of awful times in history. <clears throat> The human species almost went extinct not so long ago uh, in, the, in the Paleolithic era. Uh, obviously, waves of, of plague and epidemics have pushed us to the brink. Incidentally, one of the plagues gave rise to democracy, which I'm happy to talk about as an aside. 
uh, world wars and so on and so forth, but never ever in human history have we had the capability of destroying all of human life if we so chose. Uh, never have we faced the catastrophic threat of climate change to this degree. Yeah, the climate's changed for a long time. In fact, the, the rise of, of, of the species is largely attributed to uh, climate change. This is human-made catastrophic climate change, which is a different thing. And the threats that that pose, that those challenges pose alongside future uh, epidemics, uh, mass migration, catastrophic weather events, and so on, will put us to the test in a way we've never been tested before. Not to be too much of a downer on a sunny Sunday, but today, this is, is probably as good as it's going to get. Uh, certainly um, in my lifetime, and I'm sure in the lifetime of, of the newest generation. And so the stakes are high. They're incredibly high. Basically, the, put it this way, if we make bad political decisions in this context, what happens when things are much, much, much worse? Can democracy survive that? Can good political decision-making survive that? One of the challenges we face uh, in modernity when it comes to political decision-making is that there's a gap between what I call nature and culture. So we have certain evolutionary capacities and abilities that have just evolved over time over the last, whatever, several million years, sort of peaked what was 250,000 years ago or so, and we've more or less stabilized. Yet in that time, our cultural developments, what we expect from ourselves, our technologies, our norms, have changed. They've sped up. We have mostly stayed the same. And as Joe Heath argues in his book, what we've done is taken our limited rationality and projected it out into the world. So we build institutions and norms and technologies like this. So never before has there been a tool quite so powerful and quite so readily available to the entire world. And what do we do with it? We effectively use it as a hammer to bash one another with it. Or we look at pornography. So it's effectively, we do the same two things we've always done as a species. We fight and we have sex. Fine. But the question that technology will save us, this is the idea that technologic uh, solutionism is really put to the test as well. <clears throat> so what's happening? Well, we have these expectations for ourselves that we don't live up to. Our evolutionary capacities are strained. Meanwhile, our politics is getting faster, more impersonal, more complex, uh, and the external threats, again, climate change, nuclear proliferation, all of this stuff, are also mounting. Okay. So, backing up, <clears throat> I, I want to know, can we make good political decisions? So, what is, what is that? What does that even mean? And I want to flip the question. Is, okay, well then, what does a bad political decision look like? And I want to bracket off this idea of, of substance. Let's pretend for a second that you know, whatever the content of a decision, we'll put that aside. We have ideas about what counts as a good thing or a bad thing, what we like, what we don't like, but just set that off to a side and look, let's look at the process of what a good decision or a bad decision might look like. I would expect from someone making a good uh, decision that that th decision is based on good judgments, that we're making judgments all along the way about whether evidence is true, about whether we trust the speaker, about what our preferences should be. All of these things go into, into how we decide something. So the question then becomes, can we make good judgments? Because that's the stuff of decision making. And then collectively we get together and decide to do something. Well, we tend to make bad judgments all the time. What does that look like? I have some criteria that I've, I've come up with. I would expect a good judgment to be transparent which is to say that the motivations of the person making the judgment are known both to themselves and to others to whom they have to justify. Now that sounds like a gimme. Of course you know your motivations. Unfortunately, that's not true. Uh, good judgment should be valid. So it should be the product of evidence that's collected in the world and applied logically 
to a conclusion. You would expect that, right? That's the enlightenment vision, that human beings are rational, dispassionate, calculative choosers of ends. That's the well, initially the sort of Cartesian and later the, the Kantian version of humanity. Uh, that's wrong, mostly. It's, what's, what's the, it's aspirational, but it's not a good account of, of how human beings actually decide things. And then you'd expect decisions to be reliable or judgments to be reliable. So you would expect that judgment to be repeated over in similar ways in similar circumstances and not to be subject to, say, minor manipulation. So if I said to you, okay, you've got to have a surgery. This is an actual experiment that was done. And there's a 90% success rate. Do you want to risk the surgery? And everyone says, yes, of course. 90% success rate, that's fantastic. Let's do the surgery. And I say, okay, fine. So then I turn to this other group. And I say, okay, you know, do you want to have this surgery? I have to warn you, there's a 10% failure rate. No way. Right? Not a chance. It's too risky. Now, if you had said there's a 90% success rate, we'd be talking, but a 10% failure rate, no way. And so this, is, this happens all the time. So we call a framing effect, right? The way that you say something to someone is mighty powerful. It has an awful uh, tendency to decide how people behave. And that's just one example. We're full of cognitive biases that we can get into. You know, availability bias is one I like. You think of the thing off the top of your head, right? It seems more important. It's the evidence you produce when you're making a decision. You're not exactly going through your catalog. You're just picking off the top of your head. We support people we like, even when they're wrong. Uh, <laughs> we trash people we don't like, even when they're right, right? There's all kinds of them. These things are deeply encoded into our decision-making. I would also expect... Uh, good judgments to be rational. Now, that isn't to say that there should be no emotion that's going into a judgment. Of course there's going to be an emotion. You can't separate emotion from rationality. As the neuroscientist Antonio Damasio writes about this, he basically says, if you take emotion out of the human and the human process of judgment and decision-making, you don't get a rational person. You get a psychopath. And he talks about, you know, the old Buridan's ass is, you know, imagine a, a donkey and there's two bales of hay equidistant apart to his right and left and the donkey can't decide which way to go. <laughs> and as human beings, we're always in that situation is that we have to eventually use some sort of visceral, emotional cue to go left or right, to go to the party, to not go to the party, whatever. And yet when it comes to political judgment, I would expect to a large extent that that emotion is... Uh, channeled into a rational commitment to, okay, well, let's dig up some evidence, let's make an argument, even if it's emotional, and let's do so in a way that we can communicate to other people that makes sense of the world in a way that we share. Because how do we understand the world? It's not like we pluck truth out from the heavens like Plato would have you believe. Our truth comes from agreement. So I've got a gray jacket on. How do I know this is gray? It's because when I look at you or you, I say, okay, you're wearing gray and you're wearing gray. And you say, yeah, and this is gray. Yeah, and we agree. And a lot of what we do is based on this sort of what we call epistemic about how we know. Exchange, we agree. We agree on facts. We agree on truth. We agree on all this stuff. And that agreement requires that I'm able to put to you something that is rational and consistent and that you can agree with. That's extremely important. So we'd expect that judgments are rational in the way that facts can be discerned, that they're reasonable interpretations within whatever system we happen to live, and that there's some internal coherence so that when I'm making this decision, it doesn't contradict other decisions I've made or other judgments I've made or other pronouncements because that creates problems too, right? Because then you can't trust the person. Part of the problem with trust in politics is um, partisans do amazing intellectual, intellectual acrobatics 
And you say, how in God's name can you say this and believe this, but say that and believe that? You're a conservative and you believe in the free market and you believe in competition, but you support subsidies to the dairy industry. What's that about? And then you get into some, well, I mean, other countries do it too. Well, I mean, we're committed to the free market, but I mean, if other countries are subsidizing markets, we're going to subsidize them too. Right? And the left does this and everybody does this because the system requires you to try to hold inconsistent positions. But what does that do? It undermines trust. The same thing in judgments. It's hard to trust someone who's inconsistent. And finally, and this is the most important thing, good judgment sh uh, should be autonomous. And by that I mean those who make judgments need to have the capacity to give reasons for those judgments. So why do you support that? Why are you for it against it? Uh, Immanuel Kant, German 18th century philosopher, made a distinction between autarky, which is uh, the ability to decide for yourself, um, and autonomy, which was the ability to give reasons for those decisions. He thought the true autonomy and freedom was not just the ability to choose, but to explain why you were choosing and to control that. So for me, a good judgment requires that autonomy. You need to not just tell me that you prefer red to blue. Well, that's a bad example. That you prefer higher taxes to lower taxes. You need to tell me why. And I'll give you a great example of where autonomy fails. In the 1980s, there was a study of Americans and they were asked, do you support social welfare, yes or no? And they asked folks who were ideologically sophisticated, quote unquote, and they asked folks who weren't. The idea being that there was a sort of educated class of people who could, who could decide, right? The old Schumpeter model of let the elites do the elite stuff because they know best. And then there's the rabble, quote unquote. So anyways, they ask both groups, how do you feel about social welfare? And they say, We're, we don't love it. Uh, there's something about it we don't like. And they say, okay, well, what is that something? And both groups say, well, you know, moral hazard. If we give people money, they're not going to want to work. This is an old argument. Never mind, the data actually doesn't really bear that out. Yeah, some people are going to bilk the system, but in sort of in the way that some corporate folks bilk the system through corporate welfare. There's always going to be a class of people who just abuse the system no matter what the system is. They're just, they're just whatever. They're damaged. They're desperate. They're whatever. But most people want to work and want to be honest. So they say, okay, well, okay, it's moral hazard, and the ideologically sophisticated said, yeah, moral hazard, and the less ideologically sophisticated said, yeah, moral hazard. Well, it turns out they're all just racists. The study did a, a deep dive into what those commitments were and, and ran some regressions and found out that, no, no, what it was was these people didn't want to give money to African Americans. They had a sort of platonic idea of who the, the quote-unquote welfare recipient was, and it was, you know, this was during the time of quote, the, the Reagan welfare queen. Remember this? And they just didn't want to give money to people they, th they thought were racialized. So it wasn't fact-based. It wasn't evidence-based. It wasn't autonomous. It was racism. The folks who were less ideologically sophisticated would basically just say, well, it's my gut. I know it. The more ideologically sophisticated folks would say, it would give you a good ideological reason. They could cite lots of philosophers. They could do all this stuff. But they were just racist too. So both sides were, lacked autonomy because they couldn't tell you why they were deciding what they were deciding or judging what they were judging. Although both sides were able to dress it up and tell you a pretty good story. And this is one of the major challenges we face in political decision making today is that a lot of people can tell you a really good story, but it's often just total bullshit. And so when that autonomy is gone, can you really say that the judgment is good? I think you can't. That doesn't mean you won't get good decisions in a substantive sense. I mean, you could have no idea what you're doing and get something right. We do it all the time. But does it really count if you don't do it on purpose? I, I think of this way in sports, of regression to the mean. I think most of sports can be, I think most sports commentary is useless. I, I'm a big sports fan, but I can't watch the commentary because most of it's useless. 
the vast majority of it can be explained by regression to the mean. He's like, wow, what a hitting streak he's on. Just give it a month. That guy's coming back down to earth. We've never seen this before. I'm like, okay, well, try to do it again on purpose. Oh, you can't. Okay, well then, that's regression to the mean. There's a mean that is to, that's going to emerge. With, of course, the exception of the Detroit Red Wings. Right, exactly. Although, even the Red Wings, my commitment is to the Detroit Red Wings, I'm a big fan, uh, missed the playoffs this year for the first time in decades. So, regression to the mean. Eventually, everyone comes back down to earth. But that's true in political decision making, too. You know, you can be on a great streak, everyone can love you, you can make plenty of great decisions. It doesn't mean that those are necessarily backed up by anything particularly good. Sometimes, yeah. But it, to me, it only counts if you can fulfill those criteria. Now, that's an awfully high bar to set. Um, and I don't think I'm, what I'm giving you is an account of, of a sort of cyborg-like citizen we're ever going to develop. But I'm trying to refine these ideals that I think we should be aiming for and standards that we should be holding ourselves to in order to produce better decisions in the long run, especially given the threats that we face. Okay, so what is it that's driving these bad decisions? There, there's something, there are some gremlins that are getting into the machine somewhere along the line, right? Where does it come from? Uh, social psychology and political psychology has mapped out a number of, of theories that are pretty well supported and evidence, some of them a few decades old, that explains why there, there is this gap between what we expect from ourselves, the rational, dispassionate decision maker, and what we get. And I focus on six models and phenomena. The, the one that's pretty well known is from Daniel Kahneman's research, uh, who's fantastic, Nobel laureate. Economic, uh, he's a little bit in um, economics. It still counts, but just, just barely as a Nobel. Um, and he did a lot of work on risk and, and pro with, you know, prospect theory. And he's basically divided thinking into two broad concepts, you know, system one and system two. And he says, you know, system two is what we think of ourselves as rational, dispassionate, slow, calculating, we make, you know, we make charts, we take all the data, we map it out. And system one is the fast, intuitive, gut-based. It's like, I just feel it. You know, he tells the story of firefighters who would go into a building and would um, just flee like that. And then later they would say, how and then the building would collapse. And they'd say, well, how did you, how did you know? And they would say, well, we just felt it. And like our ears got a little hot or we just knew. And it turns out that into what that intuition likely is, is experience that's encoded in the body. You can't in the moment explain it necessarily, but you just feel it and you know. And so I mentioned that story to point out that intuition is incredibly valuable and, and essential to the species, but it can fail us. So a lot of what I look at is where system one goes wrong, because that fast, intuitive, uh, non-conscious, you know, visceral, the gut, based thinking is manipulated all the time. Sometimes deliberately and sometimes not. But everything that I'm telling you today is known very well by political communications folks, by uh, common petty um, grifters, and by uh, corporate uh, marketers. Now you might lump all those three together, but the, the one thing that does certainly unify them is that they all know this stuff very well. And they've known it for a long time. They know how to manipulate that system one. Right? This is the old don't sell the steak, sell the sizzle. And that's basically, not to put too fine a point on it, but that is what our, our marketing and politics has become in large part. The second model I look at is known as, as the elaboration likelihood model. And this is a thing that looks at how likely is someone to actually want to think about something. There's a lot of stuff to think about. This goes back to my point that politics is, is complex and fast. We don't have time to think about everything all the time. And so there's two roots of thinking and persuasion. One is high elaboration, one is low. High elaboration is what you would want in political decision making. That's when people take their time. They get into system two. 
Low elaboration is like, I'm just going to go in my gut. I'm not really going to think about this. I'm going to do what my mom or my dad did. Or, you know, I've always been a liberal or a new Democrat or conservative, so I'm just going to do what they do. And it turns out that trying to get people to make better decisions is to get them to on to the high elaboration route. How do you get the folks there? Well, either they just like thinking. There's a personality type that quote-unquote likes thinking, uh, which is nice. Or you have to motivate them to want to get the right decision. What's the problem? We're almost never motivated to get the right decision. Why would you be? The marginal returns are tiny on most decisions. So there's no intrinsic motivation to bust your ass to try to get it right. That's why when you ask someone their opinion about something that doesn't affect them all that much, or they don't know anything about it, or doesn't require them to actually follow up, or doesn't change the world in any direct way, they're giving you the top of the head stuff. But of course the problem is that feeds back into the world and does a lot of damage, especially when it's prejudiced. So part of the problem with decision making is that we're almost never motivated to actually engage in, th in, in deep thinking on things. And sometimes, and this is where it gets kind of cruel, and in cases where we might be, like say you're buying a new car, we then become subject to what Barry Schwartz calls the paradox of choice. Say you're really motivated to get the right car. Well, now you have so much data, so much information, that even though you might be motivated to make the right decision, you have no idea where to begin. And because there's so much data, you end up making a worse decision than if you'd actually had less to choose from. You know, so the one extreme is Henry Ford, and you can have any color as long as it's black. And then later Adorno and Horkheimer say, it's all the same, red Toyota, blue Toyota. It's the illusion of choice. And now we've gone so far the other way that, you know, you can have any of these things, but you just have no idea how to choose. So Schwartz's research suggests that actually choice is good, variety is good, up to a pretty limited point, in which case there are extremely diminishing returns really quickly, and then it actually becomes counterproductive. And his, he, the story he tells that the birth of his research was him trying to buy blue jeans. That goes into the gap and looks at the wall of blue jeans. It's just like, I have no idea. So, you know, this, this is how much of a, of a tricky situation we're in, because even when we are motivated to make good decisions and judgments, um, the system works against us in a lot of cases. And now into my favorite models. System justification. We seem to be, as a species, predisposed to support the status quo. We will make decisions that justify the way the world is even against our own groups in a lot of cases. So if you ever looked at a group of people, the, one of the most common uh, examples are economically marginalized folks, especially in the US South, and said, how could you possibly make the political decisions you make? It seems so very much against your own self-interest. Where, where does that come from? Uh, a big part of it is obviously you know, different, there are, there are a number of prejudices built into here, but one of them is that we have a predisposition just to support the status quo because we want the world to make sense and we want the world to be good. Underwriting a lot of what is driving us to make the decisions we make and the judgments we make is this commitment to what Anthony Giddens calls ontological security, which is just a fancy way of saying we want the world to make sense and we want it to be stable. And when you monkey with that, it throws people off in all kinds of topsy-turvy ways. So uh, an experiment done at UBC by a, a guy that was on my committee, Stephen Heine, looked into uh, what he called meaning maintenance, which is basically we have these ways of understanding the world and we struggle every day to make sure we maintain them. These are, these are psychological commitments. And he said, okay, well, what happens when we monkey around with people's sense of meaning in the world? And so they asked this control group and the treatment group to assign a fine to a sex worker. Now let's bracket the morality of that for a second and just focus on, imagine for the purposes of the experiment, everyone agrees that's bad. That's not, that's not true, but let's just imagine. 
And so the control, the control group set the fine, I can't remember, let's say $75 on 150, for example. Now, the treatment group uh, were exposed to what they called basically meaning disruptive stimuli. So they were either read a story by, uh, by Franz Kafka, the, the surrealist writer, the absurdist writer. They were reminded of death. They were asked to play a card game where the color of the suits were flipped, so spades were red, hearts were black. Or they had the examiner surreptitiously switched on them. So it would be a woman or a man who looked the exact same, was wearing the lab coat, was a different person, but they didn't notice that the person had been switched. What happened in the treatment group? The fine went way up in every group. The idea being that folks were compensating for a loss of their understanding of the world as stable and predictable, even non-consciously, by affirming law and order. They needed to get on, they needed to grab onto something for dear life, and they picked law and order because that was just the one that was there. So we have this need to desperately hold on to an understanding of the world, and so we support the status quo. Social intuitionism, which is a, a fun one. If, you, if you're looking for a new book, anything by Jonathan Haidt is quite interesting on this. Uh, there are some critics, but the, the, the big takeaway is we had this idea that we reason our way to moral decisions and to moral judgments, that something is wrong and that we've thought about it and we get there. Here's why it's wrong. Uh, that seems to be untrue. It seems to be what we're actually doing is reaching a judgment based on our guts. This is, this is wrong. This is bad. This is disgusting and then telling ourselves and everyone else a story about why that's true after the fact. One of the big takeaways here today should be we aren't reasoning machines as much as we are rationalizers. And that's what's happening with moral intuitionism. So polygamy, for instance. We'll say polygamy's, poly, polygamy's wrong. What's driving that evaluation? Well, in in actuality, what it is is probably a sense of disgust if you're not familiar with that, that culture or from it. Uh, but what do we do? We then tell a story that gives reasons. And this is where things get really tricky. We expect good judgments to be based on reasons and evidence and so on. And sometimes it seems like that's what's happening. But very often what it really is is a rationalization that's, that's essentially plastered over what's really driving us which is emotions like disgust or prejudices that we may have, so on down the line. So that, that's true of all kinds of moral commitments. Uh, Nietzsche, who was one of my favorites, German philosopher, when I was young, you usually grow out of Nietzsche, which, which, which I did, yes, exactly. And... Uh, well, that true. He was, he was crazy for different reasons. Uh, well, we don't really know. There's a, which folks are trying to figure out what, why he, he lost it. The, the argument is syphilis, but the pushback on that is there's no record of him ever having sex. So who knows? But for whatever reason, Nietzsche couldn't quite hang on. But he basically said our, our morality are lies that we told ourselves that we forgot were lies. We invent them. They don't come from anywhere. And then we forget that we invented them and we just take it for what they are. The counterpoint is they probably, a lot of our morality comes from just we needed to get on as tribes or as groups of people or so on. So we invented these norms and these taboos that were useful. And we've basically forgotten that. They've been encoded into behavior. And now we try to argue for them rationally because that's expected of us. But we can't do that because in a lot of cases there just aren't rational arguments. So we rely on emotion and we dress it up as rationality. There's a whole industry dedicated to this. Uh, one of the most insidious, I've got two models left, one of the most insidious is uh, automaticity by a psychologist named John Barge and uh, Tanya Chartrand. Uh, basically this, a lot of what we do, believe, value, support, is driven by our non-conscious. So, our moods sometimes, our goals, all of these things are activated and driven outside of our awareness. We just, like a zombie, we're not even tuned into it. It is so deep in the background, it's just 
we miss it. <clears throat> now, if you've ever driven somewhere and you get to your destination, you're like, holy shit, how did I get here? You don't remember driving there. Have you ever had these moments where you just zone out? <clears throat> And a amount of time is And by the way, if you're sitting on your couch watching TV, zoning out, fine, whatever, that's not a big deal. If you zone out while driving, huge deal. One of the arguments for driverless cars is essentially, you know, look at what human error is doing in terms of the cost of life and limb. And, you know, how much of that is, look, some of it's texting and driving, some of it's alcohol and driving. But some of it is just people are just in a zone and zoned out. It happened to me recently on a highway. I was just listening to music, driving along the Highway 7 in Ontario. I'm a pretty good driver. Uh, and all of a sudden I see lights and slam on the brakes and come within three feet of hitting another car that had been turning on the highway in a lane they weren't supposed to turn in. Fine. And yet, uh, it wasn't until the last minute because I'd been on autopilot. In the middle of a day, sunny day on the highway. Because my brain is not expecting a car to be turning left in a lane where they're not supposed to be turning left. <laughs> that doesn't just apply to driving or to sports or to any of these other, or playing the piano, any of these other behaviors that are encoded in us as automatic. It also applies very much to uh, our, what should be rational commitments and political judgment. So not only are we lying to ourselves and others about the reasons for our decisions, uh, it's coming from somewhere so deep in the back of our heads that we don't even know it. And finally, the thing that's driving a lot of these phenomena, it's not a model, it's a, this is a phenomenon, it's a motivated reasoning. If when all of this is done, you want to look up one interesting thing to talk about at parties, motivated reasoning is your winner. And it's simply this. We are motivated to get to certain conclusions. Now, sometimes we're motivated to get to the right conclusion, but most of the time we're motivated to get to a conclusion that does something else supports the status quo, supports our family, supports our, our partisan loyalties, makes us feel good about ourselves, makes us feel smarter, makes us feel more attractive, more loved, more whatever. We are driven by this need for security and belonging, and that motivates us to lie to ourselves and to others, in many cases, outside of our awareness. So the truly terrifying thing about a lot of the bad political uh, judgments and decision-making is that we are driven by these phenomena, they're explained by these models I've been talking about, and we have no idea that we're doing it. And so what that does to someone like me who's committed to trying to work this stuff out so we can have better politics is make life very, very difficult because we can't even get this stuff on the table. So to the extent that something is buried in a subterranean, it makes it really hard to interrogate it. <clears throat> we can have a whole debate about social welfare and moral hazard. And if you are just secretly a racist the whole time, we're not going to get anywhere. And those decisions and commitments become buried in our institutions, encoded into our moralities and into our norms, and then we cannot get at them because they are so deeply set that we can't even talk about them, really, because what's driving you is hidden from you and from me and from everyone. And what are we going to do about that when it comes to increasingly catastrophic climate and weather events, to mass migration that's brought on by, by climate threats and by war and by famine and by so on, uh, when epidemics spread, when there's a terrorist attack, I mean, a, a, last night's a great example of that, if you watch how people react to London, um, some people perfectly reasonable, but lots of folks, including the President of the United States, uh, seeing what they want to see, right? It becomes a Rorschach test. Uh, and that then creates policies and, and reactions. And it makes life much more difficult. So this is what we're dealing with. And I always I feel like I need to rework this talk a little bit because I always end on such a downer. I, I don't, and I'm actually, I'm actually, you know, mostly optimistic most of the time about things, and, and generally very nice. But despite my aggression on Twitter, sometimes 
But I do think we're in uh, very, very, very big trouble, and I, I don't have a lot of faith in our ability to get out of it. And, and part of the reason is there was a study done recently, an experimental study, that looked at people's support for far-right and far-left parties, including authoritarians. So it's like, what drives people to support the worst of the worst in politics? And there's a, the findings suggest that it has nothing to do with your individual circumstances, or very little. It actually has a lot to do with uh, social perceptions. So Nazi Germany, right? You whip folks up into a frenzy, and they feel it collectively, no matter what their personal level of wealth or well-being may be. And we're in a climate right now where people are particularly susceptible to that. That it's going to become very easy to attract people to extremists if things keep amping up. And to a certain extent, that explains Donald Trump. You know, people say, well, how does Trump happen? There was a sort of social hysteria, if you'll pardon the word, (coughs) driven by the perception of what was happening. By the way, some of, of, of the phenomenon that are driving these commitments are perfectly reasonable. So Americans who were mad about the 2008 financial crisis and had every right to be, wanted to look to someone who was saying, I'll come in and fix things. The problem is, that guy also happened to be saying, it's the Muslims and the Mexicans, and I'll build a wall and send them all back. Which creates all kinds of awful problems. Not just ethical humanitarian problems, but broader political problems and trust and violence and so on. So it becomes very, very easy in times of crisis or semi-crisis to take a population, to manipulate them for your own ends, and to do nasty things. Human history is full of it, full of examples of that. And then we say never again, and then it happens again and again and again and again, right? History is just riddled with examples of things that we said we would prevent that then happened plenty of times going forward. And this is the context of us trying to deal with all of these problems. And of course, you know, not the least of which, I've mentioned this before, you know, nuclear proliferation, which then creates new risks and new anxieties and new threats. And of course, a shift in global order. You know, I talked earlier about the need for, for stability. And part of the reason, you know, world systems of how countries work together alliances and who's in and who's out and who's powerful and who's rich are mostly pretty stable. And we've been in what they call a unipolar world for quite a long time since the end of the Second World War where the Americans effectively held the balance of power. But that seems to be starting to shift now. So what does a world look like, for instance, when America is on its way out and it's not clear who's in the driver's seat? The EU has a fractious relationship internally. The rise of Russia... Brazil, which is now a mess, Venezuela, which is a mess, Uh, India, which is holding together pretty well, but is in an an eternal battle with Pakistan, both nuclear powers. Uh, You know, all of this is happening in the context of nuclear proliferation and climate change. So not only do we have this reordering, which is scary, we also have it in in the broader context of major existential threats to humankind. And this is the context in which People like me are trying to find ways to make better political decisions. <clears throat> and the truth is, we can't really do that at an international level in any structural way. We rely on alliances and international organizations and just plain old self-interest because a nuclear war is no good for anybody. But domestically, there are things we can do. And so I'm very much interested in, in looking at ways that in any country, but in Canada, because that's where my commitments are, we can produce better political decisions. That requires producing better citizens. So the first thing is returning to a model, or maybe inventing one, maybe this never really existed, of robust civic education and citizenship that asks things of people, that requires things of citizens. Liberalism uh, has done a lot of wonderful things, but it lets people off the hook. It says, you can do whatever you want, just don't break the law. Respect your contracts, don't hurt anybody, 
show up for work, pay your taxes, but you don't owe anything back to the state. What does the state really ask people to do? Almost nothing. It can compel you to pay your taxes. It can compel you to obey the laws. Not that oppressive. And it can force you to serve on a jury, which the vast majority of us never do. But it doesn't require you to do anything else. Nothing else. And yet, we need to find ways to motivate people to not just hold their government to better account and to demand their government do better and follow some of these rules of good decision making, but they themselves do that too because it's very important that a people is able to express itself to the government and to show that they have preferences and then to hold the government to account to fulfill those preferences. Because what happens when what the people want and what the government does get too far apart? Uh, the United States. Canada does pretty well on what I would call uh, policy representativeness, policy representation. So far, you, in general, in aggregate, folks get the sorts of policies that they want in the long run. Uh, in the US, a study was done recently, it looked at policy from the 1970s until now, and found that that's not even close to what's happening. It's special interests and the top one or 2% of Americans that are getting what they want. And what happens? That ends up tearing a country apart because it drives inequality, it drives division, and it creates these sort of opportunistic infections for someone like Trump to come along or someone like Marine Le Pen to come along or Gert Wilders in the Netherlands or any of these folks. <coughs> that there needs to be this perception that the country is fair and inclusive as well as some reality of that being true. But that requires that there are good political judgment and decision makers, both in the formal sphere where politicians are and in the public sphere where the rest of us are. It does require something of us, I think. We need more cognitive diversity in our decision making. There's evidence to suggest that when you have a bunch of people who think differently together, they come up with better decisions. Obviously, we need more ethnic, religious, uh, gender diversity in our politics as well. Inclusion becoming a very important part of ensuring that uh, there, you don't drive the population to corners to express, uh, to support uh, extremists. This is a pipe dream, but I think we need to slow our politics down. Like one of the big challenges we face is that the pace of communications and the pace of decision making and all of this is so fast that no one can get a grip on anything. The 24-hour news cycle represents this very, very well. And then all of a sudden there's so much being thrown at you and there seems like there's so much to do that you, you basically tune out. Right? And this is in the context of a diversified media which is a mixed bag to say the least. We no longer share the same newspapers or the same television shows and newscasts. And this is the other problem. We need to find ways of now bringing back common sources of information that we can share. In part because what's happening is there's a siloing of what people see and hear and you never ever now have to hear an unwanted idea or read an unwanted sentence. You can retreat to your silos, but what does that do? It drives this polarization. It drives the biases. You're never in any way conflicted. You're never in any way pushed to think about something that might kick you up to, to actually to the motivated uh, route of considering alternatives. You can just coast along with your biases and never be challenged. In the long run, that creates big problems too. Because now we can't debate or discuss. All we can do is smash each other with talking points. I'm fine with partisanship, I should say. Partisanship is important, but there are better or worse ways to do it. And my concern is at this point, we are so siloed and so deeply biased. Again, Canada's not the best example for this because we are actually doing pretty well. Um, but it is a major threat, especially now that the media is collapsing in Canada. I, I've done a little bit of, of studying of this so far, just a little bit. And uh, however bad you think the media landscape is right now, I promise you it's worse. And nobody has any idea what to do about it right now. And what do we do when that falls? It's like the fall of the Roman Empire. Right? The other thing is I do think we need to 
and this is the final point, uh, make a deep commitment to rethinking how we engage with one another, moving away from uh, aggregative politics of voting or taking sides uh, into deliberation. I think we, the new frame of thinking about politics should be deliberation. That we ask of people a, this commitment to sit down, to exchange reasons with one another, force them to provide evidence, uh, require them by norms to provide evidence and to push in light of what we know about social psychology to bring a lot of this hidden stuff to the extent that we're able to to the surface so that we can at least talk about it. We have all of these taboos and we encourage people to hide this stuff and to dress up their positions. And yet we need that stuff to go to the surface. There's a lot of buried nasty stuff that I don't think we can leave buried anymore. As traumatic as it is, to bring that out, I think it's necessary. Because to the extent that it's hidden, we may never get at it. We may never actually be able to root it out. Now there's some hope. I'll finish on this point. There's some hope that generational change will allow us to move forward on some issues, for instance, on climate. And yet, we're seeing prejudices and blind spots emerge generation after generation after generation. So there are folks that think, well, technology will save us, as it always have. There are folks that think, well, the elites will save us, because they always have. There are folks that think, well, the next generation will be better than this one. So, and then there are folks that think we can just escape to Mars, which I guess are a subset of the technological solutionists. Those are four pretty risky bets that I, as a gambling man, wouldn't even make. So the takeaway here, at the end of the day, we think of ourselves as rational, dispassionate choosers of ends. We don't live up to that because of our psychology, because there seems to be a gap between what we expect from ourselves and what we tend to do. That's made worse by the way we do politics in the 21st century. It's now more important than ever that we address this because the stakes are so high, and yet the challenges have never been so great. So what that leaves is people like me stumping day to day to try to adjust the way we're doing things. Whether or not we're going to get there, I have absolutely no idea. Couldn't possibly tell you, but I certainly think it's worth trying. And I will leave it there, and that leaves us lots of time for questions. Half hour for questions?